Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. All right, I invite you this morning, if you would, to uh, grab your Bibles and once again, uh, join me in the book of... Romans. We are in Romans, and we are in chapter 3 this morning. Um, so uh, if you would go ahead and grab your Bible and find that, or turn on your Bible uh, and find Romans chapter 3. Um, I really appreciate what Ryan said there in his, in his prayer this morning, was talking about the fact that we have no words to describe our God. You know, our feeble little language and our feeble tongues cannot truly express the glory and the majesty the God that we worship. But God has given us the gift of language to express ourselves. And so for now, it's it's minimized in that. And so when we say God is good, just one good is not going to cover it. Uh, He is good, good, good to the infinite power. And uh, I hope that you're finding that true in your life uh, as you look back over the trajectory in the course of your life, how good God is. There are times when we wonder if he's around. He's there and he is good. Even though the circumstances may not seem good, he knows uh, what is best. He knows what is good for us. And that is, that is the life of faith, trusting him at all times, right? Uh, but we are in Romans 3. We're going to get there in just, uh, in just a minute. And I think I've mentioned this before as kind of a share, you know, like, like my life's trajectory, my life story. When I was back in high school a long, long time ago, which it just dawned on me now, like my kids... Gen Z, refer to when I graduated high school as the late 1900s. Does that not make you sound even more ancient? You know, I graduated in 1998. I still say back in 98, which is what normal people do. But now with Gen Z, it's like, oh, no, but that was back in the late 1900s. Like, man, it's like all of a sudden I'm like, and then I'm like, wait, my yearbook was in black and white. So, yeah, I guess I am ancient, right? Um, But, yeah, back in high school, I remember back then, you know, um, I wrestled a lot with God over his calling on my life. I knew kind of back when I was about a sophomore in high school that I kind of felt that God was calling me to give my life in service to him and to to preach and to be a preacher and a pastor um, and a spiritual leader. Although I did not feel, you know, obviously qualified or anything like that. But really, back in high school, what it was, you know, I was pretty arrogant. So I probably would have felt qualified at that point. But I just wanted to make a lot of money. So and I knew that that wasn't going to happen being a pastor. And so, um, and so I was like, I want to be a lawyer. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, be, I wanted to be a lawyer. You cannot pick any two diametrically opposed career paths than being a preacher of the gospel or a lawyer, right? A professional liar basically. Um, and so that's the two paths that I chose. And so I, I, I really just kept on saying, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a lawyer. And so what I would do is I would really hone my argumentative craft a lot. I would play devil's advocate. And the person that I really honed my craft well with was my mother, poor thing. Um, everything she said, I just decided, well, I'm going to, I'm going to start a debate and I'm going to start an argument on that. Right. So she would say, you know, the sky looks really nice today. It's such a pretty color of blue. And I'd be like, no, it's red. You know, and I would just lay out this long argument on why it was red. And everything she would say, it seemed like just about, I would argue with her all the time. I considered it to be practice for my career, and she considered it to be absolute rebellion. All right, so usually, usually my practice session ended in being grounded uh, for a week or something like that. So, but I would constantly do that. And I would argue my case even when I knew that I was obviously wrong, because it it really wasn't about being right. It was about being good at arguing my case. See, that's what, the, even now today, I, I have to tell my mom, and she's in this room, mom, it was never about disrespect. It was always about just trying to be the best arguer I could possibly be. So, you know, I've got like 10 years of grounding that you need to apologize for. Um, anyway, there, but in our series, in our series through Romans, what we've seen is the apostle Paul has been laying out his argument His defense or all of the evidence that he can for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's laying out this cause or this case for why the gospel matters and why the gospel is vitally important to the Christian faith, but not just to the Christian faith, why the gospel is vitally important to humanity itself. 
Because if you are truly and follow Jesus Christ, you have come to the place where you realize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. So yes, Jesus is all-inclusive in that he died for everyone, but he is also exclusive in that if you are to have eternal life, you must come to him. And that is what the gospel declares. And in a pluralistic society like we live in today, where we just choose whatever path works for us and no one should ever tell us any different. And it was also kind of that way back in the Roman culture and the Roman society of the day as well. You just could not, and basically in the Roman society, you could choose any path but Christianity just about, because Christianity was illegal at that point. You lose your life for following Jesus. But Paul lays out this lays out this treatise on why the gospel matters. Matter of fact, Paul does such a good job in laying things out in legal terms that for the first 100, about 100, 120 years of the existence of Harvard Law School back in the 17 and 1800s, first-year law students were required to study the book of Romans and learn through Paul's writing how to lay out a legal defense or a legal presentation of evidence because this is such a well-structured and well-thought-out argument for the case of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, the best case for the value of the gospel is a changed life, right? You can lay it out on paper, but if you only, uh, if you only attribute the gospel on paper and it doesn't make it into the soul, it's never going to do anything for you eternally. In chapter 1, Paul starts his case by showing that all of humanity has this one shared problem. doesn't matter if you're man, woman, boy, girl, black, white. It doesn't matter what you are, rich or poor. We all have one common problem. We all have this deep inner rebellion within us and in our relationship with God. And it poisons our relationship with everyone else. And it poisons the society and civilization in which we live. And then we moved into chapter 2. And Paul basically anticipates this objection from the religious elite and from the self-righteous people people, which we're never guilty of that, right? We're never guilty of self-righteousness, right? But he anticipates this objection because there's a lot of they language in chapter one saying they walked away from God. They became perverted. They became all of this. And so it, it causes a lot of people who say, well, they is the people that don't know Jesus. They are the people who don't go to church. And so that's who God's talking about. He's not talking about us. And Paul says, oh, contraire. Chapter two says he's talking about us as well. And he presents all this evidence in chapter 1 as being something that is held over us, the religious people, the self-righteous people as well. See, the Jewish people saw the Gentiles as a different class of human. Not just a different class of person, not just a different nationality, but a different class of human being. They were not given the benefit of God's law. They were not given the prophets to guide them and being the people that God wanted them to be. So they thought chapter 1 wasn't about them at all. They thought chapter 1 was about all the other people, all the God-haters, all the people who don't know, who don't have the legacy of being God's chosen people, brought out of Egypt, brought through the Red Sea, you know, provided manna in the wilderness. God loves us, and he's proven it time and time again, and he just doesn't love them near as much. So Paul talks in chapter 2 to show that religion doesn't solve the problem of sin. Because if you remember from chapter 2, it was like, it doesn't matter how many good things you do, it's not going to get you closer to God. It's about whether God is in you, God is inside of you, whether you have received him as your personal Lord and Savior. You see, there's a difference between the gospel and religion. Okay, and I think there's, it's important that we understand the semantics here. Because today, in today's world and in today's society, you say religion and Christianity and church things and all that stuff pretty much falls under that scope, right? I mean, uh, we all are considered to be religious people because we go to church, because we call ourselves Christian. I have a degree on my wall that says I have a degree in religious studies. When you go to find a Bible at the bookstore, you go to the religion section to find that, right? So the understanding of religion today, especially in our society, is religion just means God stuff. But that's not what Paul is using the word religion for or the idea of religion for here in the text. When he says religion, he's talking about man's arrogant attempt to be like and to reach God. And here's the problem. Anytime we look at our faith as an attempt to get to God, we've taken God out of the equation and we've made ourselves God. Because the gospel says this, none of us are righteous. No, not one. We're going to see that in just a minute. None of us are righteous. None of us have the ability to reach God. We don't even have the ability within our arms to even hold up a finger towards God. We are completely and totally without help. Because why? Because the Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and dead people can't make a move. You can't move. If, if a dead person moves, 
I know it's Halloween season. If a dead person moves, they're not really dead. Okay? We cannot make a move in our spiritual death towards God. That's the gospel. Religion says, I can do all kinds of stuff to make God love me more, and I can make God choose me, and I can, I can say, look at me, look at me, God, and he's going to bless me, and he's going to give me everything so that when I stand before God one day in the judgment, I can rattle off all these things that I did, and God says, wow, we are lucky to have you, bub. But that's not what he's going to do. We looked at this last week, Matthew chapter 20, Matthew, uh, in, in the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, there's going to be people that stand before me one day and say, Lord, didn't we do all these amazing things? We cast out demons, we preached, we did all that stuff. And he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of darkness and wickedness, because I never knew you. Why? Because it's not about our religion, it's about our relationship with Christ. And the gospel is what Paul is laying out, even to these religious and self-righteous folks who've gotten more caught up in what they can do than what Jesus has already done. And that's the gospel. Never lose the focus on the completed and finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And folks, that is a big-time relief to us. The work has been done on the cross. There is no more work that is needed of me than just to come to the cross and rest in that grace. And when we find that rest in him, we are then energized to live for him. Not the other way around. So this morning, what I want to look at, and, and here's a great definition, and I just kind of, I'm not calling it great because I came up with it, but it's a, it's a definition that I've kind of been working with on what religion is. Religion, according to, when you see that, according to the definition that is laid out for us within, within the Romans, is that religion is just humanity's feeble attempt to reach out to a God who cannot be reached by dead human means. That's what religion is, according to Paul here. See, religion may acknowledge the disease of sin, but it will never be able to cure the disease of sin. It may be able to diagnose it, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in, the, in, in a few minutes, but it will never cure it. It can only offer a placebo. It can only make you feel better for a little while, offer you a Band-Aid, offer you just something that will not last for eternity because all of religion's dressing and all of religion's flash melts away when God stands before you to judge. So this morning, I want to look at um, the gospel that exposes what religion tries to hide. See, religion, all of, our, all of our attempts to reach God, all of our attempts to be religious and self-righteous only serve to hide and deflect from what the gospel wants to already expose for us to lead us to true life. So let's look this morning at Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 uh, through about 10 this morning, and then we'll look at the other verses as we move through the text, okay? Beginning in verse number 1 of chapter 3, it says, So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? It is considerable in every way, but first, they were entrusted, or speaking of the Jews, speaking of the religious people, they were entrusted with the very words of God, or your translation may say the very oracles or wisdom of God. What then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone else is a liar. For as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Remember when I was talking about the, that I would just argue till I was blue in the face, even over something that I knew was completely and totally ridiculous? This is one of the most ridiculous arguments for remaining in sin and in prideful self-righteousness. Well, why don't I just sin some more if, the gospel, if that means the gospel goes to other people? He says, their condemnation is deserved. What then? Are we any better off? And Paul is saying, am I as a religious person? And remember, Paul was the religious among the religious. He was the Pharisee of the Pharisees, right? So Paul knows what he's talking about. He knows who he's talking about because he was one. He says, what then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles, religious and unreligious, self-righteous and pagan, everyone are all under sin. For as it is written, help me out, there is no one righteous, no, not even one. There is no one righteous, no, not even one. 
Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate us to the truth this morning. I pray that as your messenger, I would speak and be out of the way. May you move in this place this morning. We need you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Dr. Henry Ironside was a... uh, was an evangelist back in the early, here I go, the early 1900s, not the late 1900s, those are the 90s, okay? All right, you Gen Zers. Dr. Henry Ironside shared a story in one of his books about a sad conversation he had with a man one night after a, a revival meeting that he was preaching. The man came through the line to shake his hand and said, I really appreciated your message. And Dr. Ironside kind of introduced himself and then asked the question that he asked of everybody who he met first. He said, do you consider yourself, sir, to be a Christian? And the man said, no, I I really can't claim that I'm a Christian, but I would really like to be. Now, for anyone who has a soul winner's heart, man, that is like red lights going off. That's the open door to just give the gospel and see that man come to Christ. And he says, well, why would you? do you realize that you are a lost sinner? He says, well, why do you want to be a Christian? Do you realize that you're a lost sinner? And he said, oh, of course. He said, we're all sinners. He said to Dr. Ironside, he said, ah, but that often means little or nothing. He said, are you a sinner yourself? See, we'll all attest to the fact that we're all sinners, right? Until somebody looks at us and says, okay, tell us, tell me your sins. And then we're like, well, well, hold on for a second. I don't sin as bad as the guy over there. And the guy says, well, I suppose I am, but I'm not what you would call a bad sinner. I am, I think, a rather good sinner. I always try to do the best that I know to do. He says, then my friend, I fear that there is little use seeking to show you the way of salvation. Because good sinners, together with honest liars and upright thieves and virtuous scoundrels, are far from being ready to submit to the grace of God, which is only for the poor, the vile, the hell-deserving sinners who have no merits to build on no goodness to plead, but who are ready to be saved alone by the work of Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior of our sins. You see, this is where we oftentimes trend towards, isn't it? We'll admit that we're a sinner sometimes. Sometimes it's hard to even get to that place where we admit that we're all sinners. But then we're asked to say, okay, are you the worst of sinners? Or start telling me the worst that you've done. Or do you realize that you're as bad as everybody else? We start to justify our sins. Say, well, I may be bad, but I ain't as bad as the guy over here. After all, I'm not in prison like the murderers. I love the way the guy put it. He said, I'm a good sinner. I'm a good, as if there's a good sinner. It's like, well, I'm a nice murderer. You know, you know, (laughs) I smile before I kill them. It's, it's, it just doesn't make sense. If we're a sinner, we're sinners. Sin carries the wage of death. And this is the classic example of self-righteousness. This is what Paul is trying to address here when he's talking specifically to the Jewish folks and also to those who thought that they were a better class of human being or a better class of person simply because they hadn't done some of the things that the other people in church had done. Because the church was forming in Rome, you had Romans, you had nobility, you had plebes, you had, uh, you had Jews, you had all of these people coming together, and everybody had this different idea of elitism, and uh, so that's where we were at. So this week, as we look and consider to look at the gospel that is unfiltered, let's look at three things in our text that religion tries to do to filter and change the true gospel message. And here it is, we're not just what we're talking about, self-righteousness doesn't just, you know, make the gospel harder to understand. It just changes the gospel. It turns the gospel into a lie. So number one, religion tries to manipulate the gospel's message. And when I mean manipulate, I mean it tries to twist it and contort it and make it do all kinds of gymnastics so that it fits into what I want the gospel to be and to say. You see, the gospel says it's who you know. Do you know Jesus Christ? He said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. The gospel says it's about who I know. Do I know Jesus? When religion says it's about what I know. I know the word. I know the law. I've heard a lot of sermons. I know a lot of good people. I know a lot of good things that I've done. So I know my stuff. But until you know the Savior... The gospel hasn't made a difference in your life. See, verses 1 and 2, Paul is still arguing with these religious people and their mindset that is trusting more in mastering God's word than being mastered by the God of the word. He says that the Jewish religious people have been given this historical advantage, being chosen by God, being given the law, being given the Ten Commandments, having God perform miracles to get them to escape Egypt and Babylon and all of these things. And he says this, he says, you have spent your entire life and your history as a people learning God's word and his law, but what good has it done you and what good will it do you when you stand before God? And he says, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? 
See, knowing all the stories and knowing all the laws didn't stop their Jewish ancestors from abandoning God and worshiping other idols. The reason that the Israelites were taken into captivity into Babylon is because they turned their backs on God. And every time they would turn their backs on God, they began to worship other idols. Knowing all the things didn't make them faithful to God. Knowing all of God's laws didn't put them in a relationship where they could not, within themselves, abandon their God. See, just because we know it all doesn't mean we're mastered by the God who says it all. Now, you can almost picture the Jewish people here getting mad at Paul, right? They're sitting here with a stone in one hand and their Hebrew Bible in the other hand, and they're saying, are you saying that everything that we've held dear all the way through our history, all the things that we're so proud of, all the stories of Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah and Esther and Deborah, all of that stuff is worthless and we should just throw it away? I mean, it's like they're getting ready to stone him for, for, for heresy. He's like, all the feasts, all the, the feasts of the tabernacles, Passover, all that stuff that we've kept and done when no one else in the world would do in order to honor God, all that's for nothing. Let's put that in our self-righteous context today because I realize we're a Gentile people, but we still are guilty of this self-righteousness sometimes within our Christian culture at times. We may look at that and say, you're telling me that growing up in church and in a Christian home and making sure my kids are learning the Bible every day, maybe sacrificing thousands of dollars a year to keep my kids in Christian school is worthless and maybe even harmful to their faith? That's not what I'm saying. And I don't believe that's what Paul is saying here. See, there's nothing wrong with doing the right thing, but there's everything wrong with doing the right thing for the wrong, for the wrong motive and doing the wrong thing and making that, or doing the right thing and making that right thing what you trust in to be your salvation. You see, it happens so many times. Parents that have invested, and as a youth pastor, I saw this many times, parents that had invested, said, I had my kid in church my whole life, their whole life. I made sure they were in Sunday school. We put them in Christian school. We did devotions every night, and they still turned from God. Two things I normally say to that. First of all, the final chapter hasn't been written. Train them in the way they should go. When they depart, when they're old, they won't depart from it. And number two, trusting those things to be their salvation is not the same as trusting in Jesus to be their salvation. Self-righteousness makes us say, if I do all of these things, it'll give me a leg up, which is what Paul is saying in verses one and two. He's like, so does the, do the Jews have an advantage when it comes to salvation? In some ways, they have the information, but until they come to the one, they still don't have that advantage. And that's hard to take sometimes because, you know, I'm, I'm basically talking to myself right there, right? Mastering God's word, again, mastering God's word and mastering all of God's stuff will never be substituted for being mastered by the God of the word. See, the law and the word of God was meant to lead us to Jesus, never to be a substitute for him. This is why it was said about Jesus when he came, that he came to be a fulfillment of the law. He didn't come to change the law. He came to fulfill the law. So in essence, the Old Testament left us with this incomplete picture of God's plan for us. Because when Jesus came, that was the completion of God's plan to redeem us. The law was always meant to point out what we couldn't do on our own and that we needed Jesus. But what happens in our self-righteousness is we look at all the stuff and we do all the churchy stuff and we know all the churchy words and we go to church and we do all those things and we think that's what makes me a good Christian. Now what makes you a good Christian is a good savior and knowing the savior. And I'm not saying, well, that means I just don't have to do anything because a heart that doesn't want to live for God is one that's not mastered by God either. See, the gospel will also prioritize God's faithfulness when religion will prioritize my faithfulness. The self-righteous and the religious always look to what can I do to draw closer to God rather than what has God done to draw me in. When we minimize what God has done on the cross and magnify what we've done to make him look good, religion and, and worship is not about him, it's about us. This is why we open this morning with reminding ourselves from the book of John of Jesus' words. He is the vine, we are the branches, we must remain in him for real and true fruit to abound. See what it says in verse number three, what then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? This is like somebody standing up and saying, if the law was supposed to lead us to Jesus, then shouldn't all of those who know the law be lining up for the cross? He's pointing out the fact that everybody knew by now that when Jesus came to the Jews, the majority of the Jews turned their back on him. They cried out for Barabbas over Jesus and chose to crucify Jesus Christ. 
He said, look, if the law was what, it, what was going to save us, wouldn't people be lining up to the cross? He said, and so it leads them to say, has God failed in his efforts? Did God's, did God's idea of teaching the law and teaching that way to try to get people to see their need for the cross, has he failed? Is he not as faithful as we would like to say he is? And in verse number four, Paul gives the answer, absolutely not. He said, let God be true, even though everyone else is a liar. As it is written, you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. See, just because Israel refused to believe, just because the majority of people today refuse to believe the gospel, doesn't make what the gospel says untrue. See, we, we, we live in kind of like a, a mass mentality type of culture that if the majority of people believe it, it must be right. That doesn't line up with the gospel. Jesus is called the pearl of great price. He's, the kingdom of God is likened to the widow's coin and, and all of these examples of how just because it's not popular doesn't mean that it's not true. We've had seasons where Jesus was popular and we're seeing those, that season begin to wane even within our culture today, but it's not going to make the gospel any less true. It's not going to make his word any less true. In all actuality, God's faithfulness here is seen in the fact that the gospel was seen in sending his, the gospel to the Gentiles, that the, the Jewish rejection of the gospel led to God sending and preparing the hearts of people to send the gospel to the Gentiles. And so what's tragic is what keeps the religious from trusting in God's faithfulness is their prideful emphasis on their own faithfulness. See, the gospel emphasizes God's faithfulness, but religion emphasizes my faithfulness. God will also expose sin when religion excuses it. Verses 5 through 8 gives us probably the most ridiculous devil's advocate argument that you will ever see in Scripture. I mean, it's ridiculous. But verse 5 is basically saying, well, if Israel's rejection led to Gentile salvation, then how can God really be upset with us since our, faithfulness, or since our unfaithfulness led to the salvation of more people? Now, that's something stupid that I would do while I was trying to hone my craft with my mom. Like, make a dumb argument right? And then in verse number eight, it gets even more ridiculous. He, has, he says this, and if that's the case, why not just let us sit over here in our self-righteousness and in our sins of pride and arrogance even more so, so that more Gentiles can be saved? We're happy to do our part for the great commission to be fulfilled there, Paul. I can't roll my eyes back in my head anymore. There's no like physical ability for me to roll my eyes back in my head as far as I want to on that one, right? He's basically saying that if more people can get saved by me sinning, then let me sin on, baby. And they're also saying that if my rejection of Christ led to the Gentiles being saved, then, well, how can you be mad at me, God? How can you hold me accountable? Because remember, we're all under the same, we're all under the same law. We're all under the same individual expectation to trust in Jesus Christ. But you see, this is what religion does. Religion seeks to justify personal sin while holding everybody accountable to the letter and tooth of the law in judgment. But the gospel exposes our sin, reveals where we fall short, and then provides us a solution in Jesus Christ. So the base problem that drives this ridiculous truth and this, or this ridiculous argument is that religion refuses to see personal guilt only the guilt of others. But the gospel reveals the guilt of everyone. Self-righteous, unrighteous, religious, pagan, everyone. It reveals the sin and that we all stand the same. In verse number six, he says, absolutely not. That is the most ridiculous. <laughs> what I see Paul saying in absolutely not, in the original Greek, if you go back, that is the dumbest, most ridiculous argument I've ever heard. That's what the original Greek says, in my opinion. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, then why am I also being judged as a sinner? He's like, God has to judge the world by sin, by our unrighteousness. He has no other standard for that. So religion, religion tries to manipulate the gospel's message. You see all those arguments basically saying, you know, let's just throw the gospel out and let's just stick with the way we've always done it, right? The second thing that we see, and I know that we got to move fast, is number two, that religion tries to minimize the gospel's need. The gospel, or the religion tries to minimize the need that the gospel exposes. We see that in verses 9 through 18. See, when the gospel declares that all are in need of a savior, religion declares that some need him more than others. And when you're religious, guess who needs him more and less? The bad sinners out there need him more when I need him a little bit less. 
That's what religion will always lead us to. See this in verse number nine, when Paul basically asks the question, are we, the Jews, the religious people, the self-righteous people, any better off? And he says, absolutely not. Again, that's got to be the dumbest notion I've ever heard. I think that's what the Greek says. How many times do I have to keep showing you that we are all sinners? It's like, he's looking, how many times do I have to keep uttering to you that every last one of us are sinners? What's interesting is this idea of equality and inequality of humanity had to be driven home to both Jews and Romans. You see, back in that day, both Jews and Romans embraced a system of inequality in humanity. They did. The Jews embraced spiritual inequality. The idea that they were special to God and they would be saved by their Jewishness, by their heritage, by what they knew, by the fact that they had Jewish grandmas and grandpas and they had Jewish blood running through their veins. And they went to Torah school and they did all those things. Let's put that in today's context. I came from a Christian home. I went to Sunday school. I did all the, It kind of coincides, right? But they thought that there was this inequality when it came to spiritual stuff. The Romans embraced ethnic and national inequality. See, to be a citizen of Rome back in those days when the Roman Empire was growing and when it was taking over the world, to be a Roman citizen meant that you were higher class of human being than anybody else. So as the Roman Empire had spread into, into the German regions and into the Middle East and through Africa, and so if you were of Roman birth, you were the height of the human food chain. But if you were uh, under Roman oppression and you were in Africa or you were in Germany or you were in Brit the British areas or you were in Spain, which is as far west as the Roman Empire spread, you were second class. You didn't have the same rights to defense in courts of law against a Roman citizen you, and all that. And even within the Roman people, you had classes of people. You had the nobles and the plebes. And if you were a man in the Roman, that you were basically just a little bit less than a god. Because as a man, you owned your children and your wife as property that you could do whatever you wanted to with. So both the Jewish system, the Jewish spiritual eye, and the Roman eye embraced this idea of inequality all over the place. It has to continually, continually stress, we are all equal in the eyes of God. We're all sinners. And for the next eight verses, 10 through 18, Paul basically goes on to, here's where we all stand before God. This is what we all look like before God. And I'm going to move through this really quick. First of all, we have to understand, he says, we're all sinners. Verse number 10, there is none righteous, no, not even one. Do you see all those negatives there? That's to continually drive home the idea. If you want to argue, he's cutting off every argument. None righteous. But, but what? No. But, but, but wait, not even one. But, but, not even one. See, that word righteousness there reveals to our legal standing before God. It's like a defense. It's like when God begins to judge, which we know we are all going to stand before God in judgment one day, what defense are we going to give to him? What legal defense do I have? And the truth is, sin has ruined our legal standing before God. Everything we try to argue is our defense. God will look at it and say, but sin. So we look at this verse a little bit more next week, but in Romans 3.23, we see all have sinned. And the result is that we fall short of the glory of God or of God's standard. See, because God's standard is sinless perfection, holiness, blamelessness, purity. None of us meet that standard. None of us. Every one of us missed that mark, and it's not even close how bad we miss it. We're not even on the board. We miss it so bad. The Bible tells us that one day, every one of us are going to stand in judgment before God to be judged. And everything we ever did, everything we ever thought is going to be revealed in that courtroom. Not only is God going to know it, but everybody standing in there, it's all going to be made public. And when that happens, it will be abundantly clear that verse number 10 and verse number 20 through 23 are abundantly true. That there is none righteous. Think of the best, most righteous, most goodest person you know that you can think of in this world. And if you're thinking it's you, you really need this message, okay? If you're closing your eyes and you're picturing yourself, when I say think of the most righteous person, you really need to listen. But most of us are probably thinking of somebody else, right? We're thinking maybe of somebody back in the Bible, right? Abraham or Moses, or maybe we're thinking about our grandma or our grandpa or somebody like, or maybe we're thinking about our pastor. I don't know, whoever. Yeah, I need the message too. But seriously, picture a lot of, picture a lot of that, or Billy Graham or Daniel or whoever. Spurgeon, when all their secrets are exposed, because theirs are going to be just like ours, they're going to make everyone in the room blush. Even the most righteous people we can think of, it's going to make everyone in the room blush. See, because God's not going to say 
hey, Billy Graham, you know, you, you, you did a lot. You, you led a lot of crusades. You did a lot of things. And, and that's going to over, so we're not even going to go over your bad stuff because that would be against the gospel because it would be saying your good works outweigh your bad. No, everything's going to be laid out on the table. And none of it's going to weigh except for the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that's going to outweigh it all. When all of our secrets are exposed, everyone's going to be blushing. Everyone. So how would you feel right now if you had to wear this hat that, that somehow like, you know, tied into your brain and there was a ticker above your head that just like played all of your thoughts out for everybody to see? Would anybody like line up to get that hat? No. The Bible says that one day, all of our, even our thoughts, our secret thoughts are going to be exposed for everyone to see. We're not going to have a defense. We're not going to have an excuse because we're all sinners. There is none righteous, no, not one. And because we're all sinners, we're all corrupted by that sin. Verses 11 through 12 show us the depth of that corruption. First of all, it says our minds are corrupted by sins. It says there's no one who understands. Our sin makes us distort and corrupt the truth about God. That's what J.D. Greer says. This is what we spent a great deal of time on back in chapter 1 because our self-centered human hearts diminish our ability to even recognize and understand God. Remember that line, we know, but we don't know because we don't want to know? This is, this is a result of our corrupted minds. We know God's truth, but we don't know it because we decided not to know it. What we believe is often determined by what we want to believe, right? Right? The second thing we see is that our desires are corrupted by sin. It says there's no one who seeks God. So what that means is in our flesh, there is no one who actually wants to know God. Meaning that even though we can know God, we look for reasons not to know him. We look for reasons to disprove the gospel. So many people have come to know Jesus Christ because their first efforts towards Jesus were negative. They were out to disprove him. Lee Strobel in the case for Christ and so many other people who set out to disprove the gospel and found out they couldn't do it. But our minds say there's no one to seek after God. We're bent away from him and from his truth. So you may be thinking that this is all just too negative and it's all too, too doom and gloom. I didn't come to church to hear how bad I am. I could stay home and listen to my spouse tell me that and my kids, right? But you see this, you may know people who aren't Christians and they look like good people who are honestly seeking for truth in their lives and they're seeking for something. And what about the people who are devout in other religions who just may not know any better? They have to be seeking, Right? We talked about this before, but every religion, everything that we seek is usually bent towards what's going to work for me. But only the gospel gives us a God who's already done everything for us. And we surrender and submit to him because he's already done it all. See, this is not a heart that seeks God. It's not one who says, I idolize and worship somebody for what can be gained. And this is a lot the problem today with modern Christianity is Jesus is just a mascot. He's just somebody that I pray to when I want something. God is not my personal genie. And this book is not my magic lamp that I open only when I want something. God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he deserves our reverence, our devotion, our service. Even if he gives us nothing, salvation is the greatest gift. If he gives me nothing after that, I've got more than I I'll ever need in this world. But see, our desires are corrupted by sin. Sin says, feed me. When righteousness says, give God all the glory. I love what Dr. Tim Keller says. He said, people may seek God to get blessings from him. They may seek a reshaped God who conforms to their needs, their prejudice, and serves their agendas. But that's different than seeking the true God for his own sake. See, it is quite possible, and it happens frequently, to make all of what we do here at church all about us. They don't sing the music I like, or they do this that I like, or I didn't like the colors they chose on the bulletin. And I'm, I'm using really ridiculous things. But we have to get over this consumer mindset when it comes to our worship, because we're not coming to consume him. We're coming to be consumed by him. God calls to us even though our minds and our desires are corrupted by sin. He draws us through the gospel in John chapter 6 verse 44. He says, no man can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up in that last day. God draws us to him through the gospel which has come to me all that labor, all that are tired and I'll give you rest. Not only is our desire corrupted by sin, but our purpose is corrupted by sin too. It says all have turned away, all have become worthless. Our purpose is to glorify God. 
That's our created purpose. All the way back in Genesis, before you get very far into the, into the Bible, you see our purpose was to have fellowship with God and to be glory trophies for him. But verse 12 gives us the very essence of sin itself. It says, all have turned away and all have become worthless. When we were created to come to him in our sin, we turned from him. And we become worthless in our purpose. When we turn from God, life is no longer about giving him glory and bringing him glory. It's about finding some other way to get through life. This is why we find so many people who are unhappy. This is where we see the source of violence and wars because they think that more land or more money or more power will bring more happiness. But we were bent naturally or supernaturally to glorify God. But when we turn from him, that's what happens. We've all been there. We all argue with God. We all say, I'm going to do it my own way, right? All of us. And this attitude causes us to miss the purpose for which we've been created. Also, our intentions get corrupted by sin too. Look at the last part of verse number 12. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Now, surely this has to be another overstatement, right? No one does anything that is good. We have to remember to view that through God's view, not through our own view. We measure good by whether it looks better than bad. God's measure of good is not only what you do, but why you do it. You see, what we do because of our sin, our hearts are corrupted. So any good that we do is still done from a poisoned motive. If I'm going to do good in order to get something from God, blessings, eternal life, whatever, it's still out of a selfish motive. If we do good things only to get motivated by personal gain, it's inherently selfish. If we do good things to make ourselves look good or feel good, it's selfish motives. See, he looks at the deed as being good only if it's pure in its action and in its motivation. So let me give you an example of this. And Pastor J.D. Greer uses this illustration, and I think it's, it's it, I mean, it's, it's really awesome, okay? Consider a guy who has decided to cheat on his wife, okay? Now, don't picture somebody in the room, okay? Picture, uh, picture somebody who's decided to cheat on his wife. And so he, he books a hotel room at one of the nicest hotels, and the person that he's going to have an affair with is already there. And as he walks into the room to start the affair, he turns around and he tips the bellhop a $100 tip. That's a pretty generous tip. That's a good action, right? To give a very generous tip to the bellhop, right? But it's poisoned by why he's there. It's poisoned by his intent and why he's there. See, there's a lot of good that we can do in humanity, but it's already poisoned by the fact that we've fallen in sin and that we have poisoned hearts. This is what Romans is saying. There is none of us who do good, no, not even one. We may desire to do some good things, but it's only because, and it's only even noted as good even in our society, because we live in a broken society. It's only considered to be good to smile at someone because we're so broken that we will also frown. Or it's so, it's so good to be kind to someone because we're so broken that it's in our human nature to be rude. There's none who do good, no, not one, because it's poisoned by our sin. And then we see this in verses 13 through 18. All of us are condemned by our wickedness. All of us are condemned by that sin. See, our words in verse number 13 through 14 says, our words are deceptive and they breed death. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Think about the words that you've spoken over the past week in public and in private. And I know we normally don't say the things in public that we normally would in Private, because we, keep, we save the bad stuff for private, right? Those words, once they come out in front of everybody, <laughs> we'd be ashamed of them. Are those words pure? Are those words speaking life, or do they speak death? Jesus said this, that our words alone, out of everything else, if you just take our words, they're enough to condemn us for eternity. Just our words. Our feet are also pointed towards evil, to bloodshed and strife. Look at verses 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. I can feel everybody breathing a sigh of relief here, right? I've never shed innocent blood. I've never killed anyone. I've never, I've never done that. I've never been a part of a violent raid party. I wasn't a Viking. I didn't do it. But the point here is that we all have a tendency towards violence or hatred or malice when people get in the way of what we want, don't we? We may not shed blood, but let somebody get that promotion that we wanted or let somebody get that house that we wanted or that car that we thought we deserved 
And all of a sudden, we don't think good things for them anymore. We think, why couldn't I have that? I said, well, I don't mind them having it as long as I have it too. And all of a sudden, that person that got that promotion, you begin, your ears perk up when you hear something negative said about them. You begin thinking, man, I hope they don't do a good job. I hope he fails. That's the feet pointed towards innocent blood. And see what we see, the full corruption and our condemnation finally comes down to verse number 18. Our hearts are simply pointed anywhere but God. Our hearts are simply pointed anywhere but God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. See verses 10 through 18 are all quotes from the Old Testament. Like a horrible mashup or mixtape that creates this nasty collage of human sin. It's a mixtape that you never want to listen to but you have to deal with to understand who you truly are. See, Paul's not wanting us to see the actions. He's wanting us to see the heart that produces the actions. See, the heart that doesn't fear God will never set its eyes on God because it doesn't need God. And that's why we fall into no one righteous, no not one, all corrupted by our sin and wickedness. And the last thing this morning as we move to our invitation, and you're probably saying, thank God, right? Religion tries to muddy the gospel's aim. This is where it gets good, okay? But I want you to understand that negative statement. Religion will always try to muddy the gospel's aim. What is the gospel's aim, church? Help me out. What is the focus of the gospel? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our Savior. But religion always steals the focus off of Jesus. It puts it on me and what I'm doing. It puts it on the law and what it can do. It puts it on stuff and me, 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 me. God, look at me. I'm good enough That's what religion does. The gospel keeps the focus on Jesus Christ. You see, sin is not an action, it's a condition. We sin because we're sinners. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. It's just my nature, right? Think about it this way. When you get sick, why are you sick? Is it because you show symptoms? No, you show symptoms because you're sick. I don't have the flu because I cough and sneeze and have a fever. I cough and sneeze and and have a fever because I have the virus known as the flu. My symptoms show forth my condition. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And if I've learned anything during this recent pandemic, it is possible to be asymptomatic but still be totally infected. There are a lot of people, and that's what religion does. It seeks to do. It seeks to manufacture an asymptomatic state all the while you're still infected with the terminal illness of sin. See, sin and the law diagnose the condition. That's what he says in verse number 20. He says, no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. We come to know that we are sinners by looking at the law of God. But we come to salvation when we come to the great physician, Jesus Christ. It's like an x-ray. If I break my arm, there's only two ways to know that I've broken a bone. Number one, if it's a contact, uh, compound fracture, I see the bone sticking through my arm. That's pretty graphic. But if I've lightly broken my arm, I go into the doctor and I get an x-ray. And it reveals that there's a crack or a fracture and they say, hey, you've broken your arm. So I, you know, get out of the x-ray room and after, after I've had that diagnosis, I walk out and my arm is totally healed, right? No. Because the x-ray can only tell me what my problem is. Then I have to see the doctor for the healer, for the healing. The word of God and what I've tried to do today is expose, and this is what the gospel does. It exposes our need and it leads us to the doctor. The gospel and God's law is triage, showing us our need for Jesus and then shuffling us straight to the doctor who heals. But religion tries to cover that up. It says, no, you can do this. You can do that. You can do this. And Jesus begins to fade into the background. But look what it says in verse 21 through 24. We're going to spend time on this next week. But I wanted to end with this because it's beautiful. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I don't have to work it. 
I don't have to, I don't have to stress it. I have to trust him. All of this, all of this wickedness of 10 through 18, all of it is erased through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus takes it and he forgives it. The gospel of grace heals what the righteousness could never heal and only tends to try to hide and say, you're not really sick. You're not really sick. You don't really have a problem. Try telling a dead person they're not really dead. It's not going to bring them back to life. They need resurrection and only Jesus provides that. It is faith in Jesus that saves, not holding on to some pedigree or tradition like the Jews were clinging to in verses 1 through 9. It is faith in Jesus that redeems, not manufacturing a man-made righteousness that is always going to be corrupted by a sick heart that we see in verses 10 through 18. And it is faith in Jesus that pardons us from the condemnation and death sentence that we see in verses 19 and 20 and heals us of the terminal illness of sin, bringing us to life everlasting. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the unfiltered gospel. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. Accept it and deal with it in Jesus Christ. It's the only way. As we bow our head and close our eyes this morning, I know I went long today. I do every week since we've been in Romans, but we need it. And we we get an hour a week, right? So let's make the most of it. I ask you this question this morning. Are you holding on to religion or are you trusting in Jesus Christ? If you hold on to religion, the picture has not changed. You may be a better, a, better, a better version of dead, but you're still dead. You need Jesus. Trust in Jesus Christ. If you're watching this morning, you've come to understand your need for a Savior, email us and let us talk with you. Let us, let us show you from the Word how you can come to know Him as your Savior. Here this morning, come and we want to show you how you can know Christ as your Savior. Here it is. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us. There is none righteous, no, not one, except for Jesus. If you trust in him, put your faith in him, he will save you. If you need to be saved today, come to him. Father, move in this time, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand today? If you need to come for any reason whatsoever, maybe to rededicate a life, maybe say, hey, I I, want to join in fellowship with this church and uh, in the ministry that's taking place here. Maybe you just need counsel, whatever it may be. Would you come today as we sing? Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.